Hubhopper Originals. To start your podcast for free, log on to studio.hubhopper.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to Indie Jeans. As promised, we continue with this special season on space exploration and we did speak about getting legends on the show. Our guest today is just one such legend. She is an American astronomer best known for her work on search for extraterrestrial intelligence SETI. She's also the former director of the Center for SETI Research, holding the Bernard M. Oliver Chair for SETI at the SETI Institute. In 2002, Discover magazine recognized her as one of the 50 most important women in science. She earned a Bachelor of Engineering Physics degree as an undergraduate at Cornell University and as the only woman in the engineering program. Her professional interest in astronomy emerged as she pursued a master's degree and PhD at the University of California at Berkeley. It was her PhD thesis which coined the term Brown Dwarf while researching small mass objects that failed to stably fuse hydrogen. She was the project scientist for NASA's High Resolution Microwave Survey, the HRMS, in 1992 and 93, and subsequently director of Project Phoenix under the SETI Institute. Her astronomical work is well illustrated in the Carl Sagan's novel Contact, and in the film version of Contact, the protagonist Ellie Arroway is played by Jodie Foster, Tartar conversed with the actress a few months before the filming and Arroway was largely based on her character. So ladies and gentlemen, this particular podcast episode is a very special one and as you can see from what I've just been saying when it comes down to what our guest today has been involved in, has pioneered and has been doing over these years, I'm sure this is something you do not want to miss. We now proudly present a very interesting conversation with a legend, none other than Jill Tata. Hi Jill, and from one earthling in India to another in the United States, a big welcome to you from Indian Jeans. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. And I think a lot of my listeners are going to be absolutely tuned into everything you're going to be saying to them. Uh, the topic that we're going to be covering today is for some reason has been in the news all of a sudden. And have you found that as well, Jill, happening uh, where you work? Well, it seems that uh, on a cycle of like three or four years, people will get interested again, people will make claims, um, and the uh, media will pick it up, and then it, it feeds on itself for a while. I also think maybe it's because of there have been certain happenings or we may say observations or discoveries that have happened recently. And I think one of that would, uh, would, the, would you call it the Uma Uma? And that got in a lot of attention. Do you think that that started it a little bit in this cycle at least? Yes, I think Uma Uma was a big piece of this. I mean, those of us who um, were huge science fiction fans uh, remember Arthur Clarke's uh, novel and it, it seemed an obvious comparison to make. And before we get further, uh, Jill, if we could ask you or 
the young listeners who are listening to us at the moment would want to know when when did this journey start for you jill because i think you started off with an interest in engineering and how did looking out into space and looking for extraterrestrial life how did this this get your fascination well you're right i did my undergraduate degree in engineering physics <clears throat> and as a result i got very good at solving problems but i did not enjoy the educational environment in the engineering school at cornell when i was there i was the only woman in a class of 300 and when i finished i said to myself well if engineers in general are as boring as my professors i i'm going to go looking for some more interesting problems to solve and that led me to um taking a lot of different classes at uh, cornell for a year and one of them was a class taught by ed falkler about star formation and i really thought wow you know who knew that stars had a whole life cycle dependent mainly on their mass and i said gee these are these are really interesting problems so i'm going to switch to astrophysics and i did and went to a graduate school at berkeley my first year there at berkeley i was supported as a research associate program the first desk computer that we ever had a pdp8 slash s now you know it took two people to get the computer up on your desk right that was that big but it was a marvel and it had no language you had to program it all in octal you had to set the ones and zeros for the 11 instructions that this computer could do and i learned that skill and many many years later while i was still a graduate student that piece of equipment became surplus and was given to an x-ray astronomer by the name of Stu Boyer who had had a very clever idea about using UC Berkeley's radio telescope at Hat Creek and piggybacking a SETI search on the radio astronomy observations but of course he had no money to do this and so he went begging and somebody gave him this old computer as a surplus piece of gear and he arrived at my door and handed me something called the Cyclops report which was an engineering design study that had been done a couple of years before at NASA Ames and he said here you know why don't you join my group and i read this Cyclops report and i was just blown away i was i was so excited by the fact that i had the right set of skills and I was in the right place at the right time to try and do a systematic scientific exploration to try and answer this old question that humans have asked forever are we alone and so I just I I got hooked and I've stayed hooked ever since so it was an accident that I got into SETI and uh, it was all because I knew how to program very strange early computer yeah and the, i think the cyclops uh, the project was quite interesting as well or what it was intended to do because i think the intention there was uh, to coordinate that a large number of radio telescopes to search for earth like radio signals and mainly i think you'll be looking at distances of about 1000 light years right at that time to find intelligent life oh that's where they well there are mil- there are about a million stars within mm. um, 
that distance, and, and they thought that that would be a good number to search. <laughs> but the Cyclops report was, a, again, an engineering design study with no cost boundaries. So they dreamed up this array of 1,600 100-meter radio dishes that they were going to use and add the signals together. And we didn't actually even know how to do interferometry at the time. Mm -hmm. So um, they weren't even using those, if you could ever have built them, um, those 1,600 radio dishes were just, the uh, outputs were just summed. And I think at that time, was it, uh, the, the choice was radio and optical, or optical came in later? Optical had been suggested around the same time by Charles Towns, mm. but we actually didn't have the technology to implement it. So optical came in about 30 years after we started the radio when we finally had uh, appropriate computers and, and detectors. Mm. And while you were doing this or looking for these signals, especially because it was you're going to go out into space, does the dust matter because of there's no dust rather in space? Is it better that way? Well, dust is a problem for the optical because the size of the dust grains are about equal to the wavelengths of the radiation and optical frequencies. And so dust heavily scatters and absorbs the optical um, signals. But radio wavelengths are so long compared to the size of a dust grain that they don't see the dust. And so you can look completely through the galaxy to see the center of the Milky Way galaxy in the radio, which we've never seen in optical. Optical distances are, in fact, looking for signals, the distance is limited by the dust. And then as you go into the infrared and the radio, you have less scattering and obstacles. And I think you also, I would like our listeners to know that you were you were the one that actually came up with the name Brown Dwarf, not only the name, but you actually researched and and, and got into that. But that that's a great name. We, it, it is taken for granted now, but that must have been an interesting story. And, and how did it happen at that time? Because I think, uh, I mean, for, for a brown dwarf, any gas planet, it had to be at, at least 13 to 80 or 70 times that of Jupiter, right? Right. When I was a graduate student working on looking for a thesis topic, we were beginning to talk about this uh, idea of missing mass in the Milky Way galaxy. We thought that there should be about 10% more mass in the galaxy to explain the motions of distant stars in the galaxy. Then, then we could add up when we counted the mass of all the stars and the dusts and the gas that we knew about. Mm. And so we, I wondered if indeed stars that were born in large molecular clouds and collapsed, but indeed the mass of the gas cloud that collapsed was too small to get hot enough to actually stably fuse hydrogen to helium at their centers. I wondered if these tiny stars that would eventually become dim, 
they would never, you know, they, they just didn't turn on, um, whether that could be the missing mass. Mm -hmm. And so I had to try and figure out what these stars would be like, how to do code. I actually used codes from, from Livermore, from the, the, um, the bomb makers uh, to do mm -hmm. stellar interior. And then I tried to fit an atmosphere around this small star. And at the time, our, our knowledge of opacities at low temperatures and low densities were really poor. And mm. I could never get a good numerical solution that would allow me to, to fit a proper atmosphere around my stellar core and thereby decide what color they would be where the light could get out, what wavelengths. And at the time, um, I was aware of a statement by Edmund Land, who was running Polaroid Company. And, and Land said, brown is not a color. So <laughs> I couldn't get a good color temperature. I called them brown because I didn't want to mislead anybody by saying they were red or something else. So brown is not a color. I couldn't get a good color temperature, so I just called them brown dwarfs and it stuck. Wow, that's such an interesting story. And when you were thinking of this, like you said, you were a student at that time. And we we normally look at these discoveries or inventions and we think of, of you or what you all are doing. Would you think about it mathematically or are you thinking theoretically first or, or trying to put this together or are you doing both of it together? How does this... It, it, for me, it was doing both together. Uh, it was thinking about the question and trying to figure out what kind of calculations I could make and learning the math that I needed to know in order to do those calculations. And it was all a piece of the same um, exploration. And getting to the, to the interesting part of SETI and all the search for extraterrestrials, would you like to tell us how that started for you and, and your involvement there in the early days? Well, the involvement was by accident because I knew how to program this PDP-8S computer. And uh, we built, so University of California at Berkeley has a, had a radio telescope in Northern California. And Stu Boyer had this interesting idea about you could take the radio signal, voltage is a function of time coming out of the, the telescope, you can make a copy of that signal. Basically, you can um, noiselessly copy radio signals because you're measuring both the amplitude and the phase from the telescope. And then you could analyze the copy that you've made for signals that were engineered rather than astrophysical. And basically, that meant that you would look at the signal with much higher frequency resolution you would break that radio data up into a very large number of individual channels. And then you'd look for a signal that was compressed in frequency. It only showed up at one of those channels. Although over time, it might change. The channel that you found the signal in might change with time because of the, the rotation of the Earth and a Doppler shift that that caused in a narrow signal. So we did that. We built a spectrometer that had, we built a 100-channel receiver. And then those channels were only one hertz wide. 
astronomers were typically looking for signals, even if they were looking for um, atomic or molecular lines, they were still looking for signals that were thousands of hertz wide. And so we narrowed down to these one hertz channels and um, went looking wherever on the sky the radio astronomers were looking and at whatever frequency they were looking and we were looking for these engineered signals and of course we found them but we quickly learned that the hardest part of the search was going to be discriminating between signals that were actually coming from the sky and signals that we, we were generating ourselves in satellites or on Earth, radio interference. And that remains the case today as we get more and more uses for the radio spectrum. Um, we get noisier. And so this relatively clear window on the universe that we used to have is now closing. And we have to pay more attention, use more computing resources to distinguish between this interference and the thing that we're looking for. And was this something that also led to the HAPCAT or uh, us coming up, or you coming up with a catalog of habitable systems or habitable planets? And that's when it started. Uh, people know about it today. But how did you define it then or did you set out to see what would the conditions have to be for a habitable planet? Yes. When um, we decided after a decade of renting time on large telescopes around the planet so that we were on the air maybe 15% of the time, we finally decided that we wanted to build our own telescope so that we could be on the air all the time. And one of the motivations for doing that was to be able to find transient signals, signals that only showed up once and are very hard to um, get validation for. So we wanted to build our, our own telescope to do this. And then we said, okay, now we're not piggybacking on anybody else's observations. We have to decide where we want to point that telescope. And first thought is, well, we know one place where there is life and technology on a planet around a particular type star. And so we should probably look at catalogs of stars to find other stars that are like our own sun. Since we knew it happened once around such a star, those stars would be preferred. And so we went through the available stellar catalogs. This was long before Gaia and picked stars that were as close to our sun as possible in terms of spectral type, in terms of age, and that time we were, we were not very keen on binary systems. We didn't know whether planets could stably orbit binary stars. So we excluded those. We wanted um, stars to be 
And so we built this this habitat. And we built it before we ever knew that there were planets around any kind of stars. And now, because of the Kepler spacecraft mission and because of tests that went along to that, um, we now know that there are more planets than stars. Every star on average has at least one planet. And so uh, we could therefore relax our criteria and say, well, to have planets, maybe a star doesn't have to be like ours. And we began to put more emphasis on mirror stars, stars that were closer to us because we could detect the faintest signals. And so now our catalogs have two components. They have stars that are like the sun and they have stars that are close to us. Right. And I think the Allen Telescope Array was what you were referring to earlier when you said you decided to have your own, uh, you decided to have your own systems looking out into the sky. And you, it, was that the system that you were talking about? That's correct. The Allen Telescope Array was built at the Hat Creek Observatory in Northern California. And um, we had hoped to build 350 small telescopes. So it's the first time that we built, uh, it was the first time we built a large effective telescope by building a large number of small dishes. So we had hoped to build 350 six meter dishes. It turned out that there was a lot more research and development that we needed to do in order to figure out how to do such a thing. And so we ran out of money. Uh, we didn't get to 350, so we have 42. Okay. And you mentioned earlier, interestingly, just thinking about it, where you said that where you were thinking about the brown do-off, you were doing your math at the same time, uh, connected to what you're doing at SETI or what SETI is doing or what everyone is doing now when we're looking for extraterrestrial life. Is it a fact that... Uh, math is a is a universal language or is it that we as humans look at abstract math or you know some kind of symbology that we can represent but does that also limit it it could be the way we express ourselves through math and there could be different explanations or different formulas but does it mean that everybody all over the universe is doing the same thing if we have to find somebody or a signal well I'm, I'm inclined to believe that everybody is counting some way or another. But this question of math, at least math as we understand it, being a universal language, I think is less and less robust. Because we're now understanding that the way that we express mathematics is indeed ruled or shaped by the structure of our brain mm. and that somewhere else some other creature with a totally different brain structure may be expressing the same concepts but in a way that is so foreign to us that we don't identify it as the same thing so that used to be one of my um, 
givens, right? I used to say confidently that math will be the universal language. And now I'm not so sure. <laughs> and interestingly, you were mentioning about looking for these signals early on. And I just want to understand that a little bit more when you said look, and you said you used the word you were looking for deliberate signals because you're trying to look for intelligent life. Let's let's stay with intelligence life for the moment. So then are you are you looking for some patterns in those signals? Or are you looking for something that does not form a pattern or something has to be uh, veered in in that form? Well, I think I use the term that we're looking for engineered signals. Correct. So right. something that as far as we know, we can produce with our technology, but nature can't produce. So in the radio, that turns out to mean frequency compression. Hmm. So we can look at the radio sky and see what is the narrowest emission structure that we can see from natural sources. That turns out to be saturated masers. But the, the energy from these masers is still spread over a frequency range of something in excess of 300 hertz. Mm. But with our technology, we can produce signals in the lab that are much narrower than one hertz. Now, as the radio signal um, travels through the interstellar medium, a, a signal that's just a pure tone at one frequency will, in fact, get dispersed, right? And it will get broadened. And so, realistically, we've kind of said practically we should be looking for signals that are on the order of one hertz or a little broader, but less less broad than the 300 megahertz that we would get in terms of a maser signal. So that's kind of sandbox frequency compression that we've set up in the radio. And when we do the same kind of argument in the optical, turns out it's time compression that distinguishes an engineered signal from an astrophysical signal. So we're looking for bright pulses of light that last for a nanosecond, a microsecond, a millisecond, not longer, because nature can make pulses that are longer. So time compression and frequency compression have been the, the things that we have um, decided distinguish an engineered signal from an astrophysical signal and so we look for patterns in frequency and time that are um, indicative of these kinds of signals but now that we have the ability to build neural networks and use machine learning We've been able, instead of saying to the computer, tell me whether there's this particular pattern within the data. Now we can say, look, 
here's noise, that's what noise looks like, and here's data. And is there anything in the data that doesn't look like noise? So we're just beginning a new era of being able to say to the computer, look at these data and tell me if there's any kind of pattern here that is not noise-like. Mm. And should you find that whenever you, you do, and I'm sure we, th these keep happening, then we have to take into account the distance that it is traveling as well. Because if, I guess, because if you're looking for some kind of a signal and the, the distances that we're talking about, the light years that we're talking, so we would always, in every case, be finding out about the past. It would be difficult to know that. So any signal that we do get would have happened uh, quite some time ago, right? Yes, if it's coming from our galaxy, it could be um, tens of thousands, up to a hundred thousand um, years in getting from um, the origin, the transmitter to our receiver. And that's why Philip Morrison, who was one of the early pioneers in this field, used to refer to SETI as the archaeology of our future. Mm -hmm. So it's, if there's any information content, in the signal, we will be learning about their past because of the finite speed of light. But if we successfully detect a signal, we are going to learn that it's possible for us to have a long future because the only way that two technologies can be close enough in space and overlapping in time is if on average the technologies persist for very long times long in cosmic terms not just human terms so on average if we succeed on average we're going to learn that that um, technologies have long lifetimes and therefore we can look forward to a long future i mean it doesn't mean that we won't screw it up yeah. Do ourselves in. Also, if if that is the time that we're talking about and technologies have moved on, the possibility of us actually interacting or finding uh, any alien race, they would have themselves moved forward in AI as well. So the way we are sending probes currently to our planets or our neighboring planets, they probably could be doing the same thing. And so we may not, first of all, get directly in touch with them, but may just encounter their... Uh, their probes, that is AI? Yes, that, that, that could well be. Uh, I think that statistically we can say that uh, any other technology that we discover, however we do it, um, is going to be older than, than we are. And therefore, I presume we'll have more advanced technology. We can't be any younger because if they didn't have a technological capability that was at least comparable to ours, we wouldn't find them. They would mm. be invisible. And um, if they're older, then there's potentially a lot we could learn. Mm. And when you are looking for currently life, and we want to just get, try to understand uh, exactly, because that's the core of what SETI is doing, and I'm sure it's been your passion all your life, when you talk about intelligent life 
and when you talk about let's say microbial life how how do you how do you look at both these differently and finding any one of them do you think is going to be different or have a different impact for us for example tomorrow if we find microbes on on mars uh, we detected methane some time ago it didn't create such a big stir because it still seemed to be okay but if we do encounter another being that is intelligent then that's a different ball game altogether right on the other hand a couple of months ago there was a um the discovery of phosphine gas in the in the atmosphere of Venus, and people got yes. really excited because, um, given how much we thought had to be there to produce the signal that was found, um, and we went through all kinds of um, chemical matrices, we couldn't we couldn't figure out a way to make that much phosphine without biology being part of it. And so people got really excited about this potential uh, ambiguous, yes, detection of perhaps biology in the clouds of, of Venus. And people were very excited about it. Um, but I think the, the disconnect or the discontinuity is because the thing that we like to think about most as humans is humans, right? Other, mm -hmm. other and, and and so we've been wondering whether there's the other right since we've walked out of the caves and started looking up at the sky we, this is an old old question and we're really interested in calibrating our place in the cosmos how do we fit in are we common are we unique um are we the lowest technology on the totem pole or are we more towards the people end? you know it takes a cosmos to make a human but where do we fit in on some scale of intelligent creatures in, in, in the cosmos so i think it's uh, it's a bias that that comes from our own selfish interest mm -hmm. Evolution could have happened in different ways, right? And when it comes to intelligence, I think intelligence is a byproduct of evolution itself. And if it happened in so many ways here, right here on Earth, uh, just thinking of the, the ways it could happen all over uh, different planets or uh, different other worlds. Well, yes. The, the question is, can evolution from chemistry to biology to technology happen in different ways we actually don't know the answer to that mm. because what we're looking at on earth is a biological evolution that all seems to go back to the one last common ancestor biology's really only happened in one way we don't know if it can happen some other way as a as a physicist we like to talk about branching ratios if an experiment can have multiple different kinds of outcomes we'd like to know what percentage of the time you get outcome a what percentage of time you get outcome b etc we don't know that yet about life and biology and we don't know um, the difference between what was uh, absolutely necessary 
and what is contingent. I often like to tell students that if we had prehensile tails like monkeys, we would have some just so story about why tails are required to have intelligence. <laughs> uh, and, and without another example of biology, I often said that we will never understand what is necessary versus what is contingent in the way that biology happened on this planet. But actually now, there's a whole new science of synthetic biology. And we're beginning to build from very simple molecular um, components. We're being, beginning to be able to build more and more complex structure. So perhaps this new study of synthetic biology will in fact give us a way of understanding what is necessary versus what just happened as contingency. So I think that's an exciting new new trend. It's it's kind of like when we were talking about what technologies we could detect, and we can only detect the technologies that we so far know about. I I'm looking for radio waves and optical waves and infrared waves, but maybe the thing I should be looking for are zeta rays. Mm. I don't know what a zeta ray is. It's a technology we haven't invented yet, so I don't know how to use it um, in a search. And the synthetic biology may, in fact, tell us that there are ways to move from chemistry to something that we would recognize as living that isn't the DNA, RNA-based biological chemistry that all life shares on this planet. We've also found, or we keep finding, uh, strange life on our old planet. Uh, and we should not forget that because there are certain places on Earth that we've not yet detected or we find it too harsh. So I think both of those things seem to work together as we keep discovering exoplanets or strange exoplanets. We keep discovering strange places or strange forms of life, right? So it seems to be telling us that there is life or a possibility. Yes. So exoplanets and extremophiles have been the huge game changers over my career. And now we know that there is a great deal of potentially habitable real estate out there. And the, the uh, scientific exploration in the next, in this century is going to be trying to figure out whether any of that is actually inhabited. Mm, that, that's going to be interesting because bacteria seems to be the dominant uh, life form on Earth, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we talk about looking for biosignatures and looking for technosignatures. Um, the biosignatures may be more um, ambiguous than the technosignatures because we look and we think about what, do, what does life um, in the aggregate how does it modify its environment? And we look at the disequilibrium chemistry of the atmosphere of Earth. So the coexistence of methane and oxygen, which are 
very reactive gases. If you put them together in the laboratory, you get water and carbon dioxide. And of course, mm -hmm. that's happening in the atmosphere all the time. But because we have biology on the surface of the planet, you have this huge source function that's replenishing these gases. You have photosynthesis producing oxygen and bovine flagellants producing methane. But there are other ways of producing oxygen, other ways of producing methane that are abiotic, don't require life. And so this disequilibrium chemical signal may not be unambiguous. You may have questions about whether you found life. With respect to the technology signatures, the things that we're thinking about from signals to building large megastructures in space, those are likely to be completely unambiguous. But they're all part of the same spectrum. They all fit under the same umbrella of astrobiology, looking for life beyond Earth. Mm. But those large structures that you're talking about, that we could be looking for or find, would, would a Dyson Sphere be one of them? Dyson Sphere would certainly be, be one such structure, yes. The and other thing that I like to think about um, as another example is think about this wonderful system called TRAPPIST-1, right? It's mm -hmm. seven roughly Earth-sized planets orbiting a tiny little red uh, dwarf star. And each of those planets is at a different distance from its star. So naturally, they should be at different temperatures. But when, in the next decade or two, we build telescopes that are large enough to actually image these individual planets in the TRAPPIST system, what if it turns out that they all are the same temperature? They all look the same. Mm -hmm. That is not going to happen naturally. That's going to require some engineering, some planetary scale engineering. But it, it would, in fact, be another unambiguous techno signature. Mm. And that would be something like a Civilization three that could have that ability or more, right? It would certainly be a technology that's far in advance of ours. And I guess we've also heard that you've recommended that SETI changes its name from search for extraterrestrials to search for technosignatures. Is that true? Yes. Um, and the reason is that I think it makes it, um, it, it makes the obvious parallel to the search for biosignatures that astrobiology seems um, very willing to undertake and fund. And by making this parallel and making the point that this is just another way of finding life beyond Earth, I, I'm hoping that it doesn't have um, the same funding problems that we have had historically with, with SETI and laughing at little green men searches. <laughs> Yeah, but we, we want to hear about that as well. And, and what do you think about it? Because everyone knows the stories, everyone's seen the movies, we know what's happening in pop culture, the X-Files, and we've grown up on, on the X-Files, actually. So uh, 
kind of my favorite but do you see that ever happening a contact um i don't know the answer to that that's what we're trying to figure out is there in life and technological life beyond earth um, so if the answer is yes then perhaps contact is feasible if the answer is no then no but we don't know the answer to the fundamental question yeah and what about the wow signal jill that was interesting as well when it happened and was it significant or was it or, or could it have been a signal or like you were talking we were talking about patterns uh, earlier and did that fit your bill of the exact light or the sudden blob the wow signal um i often say that if i had been in charge of that search you would never have heard about the wow signal <laughs> because the team had a scheme of um a way of trying to discriminate between signals coming from the sky and signals being produced by our own technology and they had two receivers and they required that a signal would first be seen in the east receiver fade away and then come up in the west receiver and fade away the wow signal was seen in only one of the receivers and they actually don't know which it was east or west and therefore to me it failed the validation the confirmation test and i would have said no nope, i know it's very strong stronger than anything you've seen but it failed the test and i think that credibility and um, verification is key to the whole SETI project so for many reasons but validity being one of them um we've just we, we've developed something that we call the rio scale and hardly anybody knows about it but it's if you think about earthquakes and you think about the richter scale mm. you know that a magnitude seven earthquake is a whole lot stronger than a magnitude four right? mm. so the difference between four and seven means a lot well, this Rio scale runs from zero to 10, and it has two components. It looks at the probability or the likelihood that the detection is real, and then how significant the detection is. And it's, uh, if it appears to be a signal that's coming from within our solar system, it's a lot more significant than something that's extragalactic in terms of its potential impact on on earth and for me the most important number on that scale is zero because this is a way that we can very quickly tell the media tell the world that this is a hoax mm. don't pay any attention to this mm. and so yes we're trying to we're, we're trying to find some way of telling the general public how significant how credible claim discovery actually is so why do we read a lot about or hear about the post-detection disclosure protocol or people having this opinion that 
if it ever happens that there is a disclosure that needs to be made, it would either be held back because of undetermined implications for society or particularly for world religions or, or the social fabric of everything would change. Is there something that you think would be the case? And should there be a protocol and decision made when and how to release this information? Yes, I think there does need to be a protocol. I think you always do need to plan for success. And um, the protocol that you're talking about was first developed in the 1980s uh, and a collaboration between the International Academy of Astronautics and the International Institute of Space Law. And it said, you know, I just said, look, do this the way you do any other science. You make sure that what you're just what you're about to announce isn't a fluke it isn't an accident it isn't noise verified get a get a second independent confirmation of the signal um and then tell the world but after that the next line in the protocol says and that the there should be no transmission from Earth in response to this signal until there is a consensus globally about who will speak for Earth and what should they say. And we had no ability then or even now to give a good description of how that consensus could be reached. But it is still philosophically the high road that that's what we'd like to do. And, and of course, there's no enforceability whatsoever with this protocol. It's a bunch of scientists that say, yes, we think that this is the right way to go. Um, there are precedents for this in biology for scientists deciding that they would follow a certain group of, of rules. I, I honestly don't know. I think if we announce the detection of a signal tomorrow, everyone with access to a transmitter would in fact use that transmitter to say whatever the heck they wanted to say. <laughs> right? Sing a song in space. Right. And then Freeman Dyson chuckled when, when I said this and he said, well, you know, don't you think that that cacophony would be the best description of Earth today that you could possibly make. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think also people, people, people get worried because if somebody has traveled all that distance to come here, uh, they are going to be technically, obviously, very advanced. But do you do you feel that they don't necessarily have to have bad intentions? they may not at attack us because uh, we may be aggressive beings and we've cooled down a lot now, but that des doesn't necessarily have to be their approach as well. What do you think about that? Well, I, I actually very much agree with you. Uh, if they are a very advanced technology so that they can get here, then they are older than we are. And it seems to me that you can't become a long-lived, sustained technological civilization 
unless you've managed to suppress the aggressive parts of your behavior that probably helped you to get intelligent in the first part, place. But once you begin a cultural evolution um, are in fact um, detriment. I think that you know, I, it's very much the Steven Pinker idea that we are kinder and gentler than we have ever been. And cultural evolution will continue to drive us in that direction. So mm -hmm. I I'm not of the opinion that we would have anything to worry about. But there's no way of knowing until it happens. Right. Also considering that universally, if there is a universal law, if there is, it is rather nurturing and evolution on our planet could have led us to aggression because of resources or limited resources. But that doesn't mean that everybody is going to go through that same struggle for for food and water and, and hunter-gatherer life. So it could be another planet where there's abundance, there's happiness, joy, and intellect comes there. So they don't see that part of it at all. They may not have aggression in their genes. Well, yes, yes. And again, we have only one example of evolution on this planet. But I think that aggression was part of the, is, is part of the predator-prey relationship is something that helped ratchet up intelligence on this planet and so perhaps competition of some variety uh, will be part of the evolution of intelligence elsewhere right but at some point it becomes counterproductive and you have to outgrow it if you're going to stay around <laughs> yeah yeah angela we, we would love to know uh, a little bit more about Contact and the Carl Sagan book followed by, of course, the movie. We've all seen the movie and for a lot of us who are space enthusiasts, we've seen it more than three or four times and I, I was watching it maybe maybe a month ago again. I just wanted to know from you, what was your how, what was your reaction when you and how where did you see the movie for the first time? Did you go to a cinema and what did you go through when you were watching the movie? Well, I, I started with contact when Carl sent me a pre-publication copy of the book because um, he was a colleague. He and I had had a lot of discussions about doing science as, as a woman. And I, I eventually decided that, you know, the character, the main character in contact is really Carl. Right? And he had a, a number of female colleagues that he, he worked with and, and could put with uh, with his wife Anne, could put the female point of view on it. But I have to tell you, um, Carl Carl died uh, in December, and Contact the movie premiered in the spring, and we went to the um, premiere, and walked the red carpet, and all that good stuff. And in the closing scene. The, the closing credits, the, the, thing, the last thing it says is, you know, for Carl, which just started the tears, right? Because we had lost him. Mm. Uh, but that, it's a great movie that has a huge enumeracy, right? There, there is just some miserable math there. When there was a, a memorial service for Carl at JPL, the movie was still being edited and cut 
Uh, but Andrewian, his, his widow, wanted to show a clip from the movie as part of that memorial service because Carl had been working on it at the time mm. of his death. And so, unfortunately, the clip that Warner Brothers gave her to show was this enumeracy because it it was it, it preceded the the first kiss in mm. in the movie, and so it was the romantic anchor. And they knew that whatever else they cut, they weren't going to cut this. So you have this scene where Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey are sitting there at Arecibo looking up at the sky. And she says, look at all of those stars, 100 billion, right? And if only one in a million of those stars had um, planets, and if only one in a million of those planets had life, and if only one in a million of those life forms had um, transmitters, there would be millions of signals to find. So what's the math? It's 10 to the 11 multiplied by 10 to the minus 18, and that sure as heck isn't equal to 10 to the 6. So I mean, there's 13 orders of magnitude or so wrong in that equation. <laughs> I, so as, as soon as we got out of the premiere and we went to this party afterwards, uh, down in Hollywood, and went and I got Jody and the producer, and I said, "You got to change this. It's the math. It's just wrong." And I went and got the screenwriter, the young kid, came over and he said, "Oh, well, I worked so hard on that." He said, "I was sure I got it right." And I'm going, hey, dude, all I had to do was ask, right? <laughs> and it unfortunately, cinematically, it. it it's just too close up on her face when she's saying this. So you can't change one in a million to one in a thousand, which would have made it a bit more correct. Mm. So it's there every time I see the film. And when on the 20th anniversary of that picture, I think I probably saw it a dozen times in that year. It just, it just really gets me unhappy every time. And a lot of us now, I said, after you just told that to us. Oh, okay. Now, you, now you won't be able to unsee that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I thinking of it, I've watched it that many times, and I'm sure everybody listening is going to go back and 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 go to that again. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, the thing that the producer said to me that made me so angry was he said, "Oh, Doctor Tart, how many people do you think are going to get that?" <laughs> and to me, it's just a condemnation of the way that we teach our young people about math and how to think about large numbers and think about orders of magnitude and get it. We don't do a very good job at that. Right. And do you think, Jill, that whenever this uh, contact or whenever we we do come in touch with some kind of extraterrestrial. The reaction that would happen, would it be initial? Do you think it will cool down? Because in the last few years, if uh, you're looking at the kind of, maybe the kind of television that I grew up on or the kind of film that we've watched, there would be one science fiction, uh, sci-fi movie, let's say, and generally there were other movies, or you would have to get a comic book and things like that. But today, uh, I mean, you every channel or every network or everything on Netflix, every second or every third one is science fiction. 
and there is an alien or there is uh, there is a, a it's a space movie or there is an there is a war between planets the star wars so i'm thinking about my son and the way I, when if and i've had this conversation with him and, and he seems to be so relaxed about it because it's if it does happen it happens you know this generation i'm talking about would take it that way so are we more receptive now than we were if this event would have happened well certainly we're we're more steeped in that storyline than we used to be right? um this was so far out on the fringe when we first started trying to search for signals and today it's it's just the the next question that you ask once you know that all stars have planets and some of those planets are like the earth and then the next thing you ask as well is there any life so it is it is far more um mainstream than it once was and again it's exoplanets and extremophiles that led to that difference it's it's impossible to i think predict human behavior I mean, humans in my country have behaved so abysmally in the last 10 days that I, which I never would have predicted. Um, I just really don't know. We, we, we've actually held, you know, it's NASA, so we held workshops on this question. Uh, how will people react? And we brought in religious leaders and psychologists and social scientists and um, media folks and the end of the day they said well you know, humans will react to this news in accordance with whatever cultural norms are there at the time and you look at them and you said we paid your airfare to give <laughs> that advice so, um no it's it's really hard i don't know how people react i think as you pointed out your son would not be as surprised as you might have been at his age because he's just swimming in it it's all around it's part of the ethos now hmm. and before we let you go uh, jill if you had to speak to or you are speaking but if you had a message for all our listeners and i think you would know that a majority of our listeners are between the age group of 13 to to 26 and 27 a lot of them are in college getting ready for education and university and fields that they want to get into would you have a message for them both for the future one ethically in whatever field they do uh, collectively as a race what they need to be looking out for and then individually careers that they wanted to choose and how should they choose those how would you speak to them directly well i would like all of your listeners who have electronic devices to go in and change their profiles on each of those devices so that the first thing they say about themselves is not that they're an american or an, <clears throat> an indian or a european but that they're an earthling because i think this cosmic perspective is something that is incredibly important for our long-term future we have so many challenges on this planet that don't respect national boundaries and are going to have to be worked on and solutions found globally. And so I think if they put themselves in that frame 
of reference, that they're an earthling. I think that will go a long way to finding solutions to these challenges that we face. And in terms of what jobs and what careers, I would simply tell them, whatever it is you love, whatever it is that you really like to do, go to whatever kind of training and schooling that you need to, to become the best that you can possibly do at that thing. And then use the skills that you develop and your passion to look for problems that your skills can be useful in solving. And it may not be anything that you ever thought about. And probably the the younger generation that we're talking to is not going to have one job the way I have from a career. They're probably going to do two or three or four different occupations or fields of interest because when they start out, what they will end up doing won't exist. We're developing new technologies, new areas of scientific exploration that um, develop very rapidly. And so you need to get good skills, become a good problem solver in ways that you find appealing, and then go look for interesting problems to solve. And don't expect that it's going to be the same problem throughout your, throughout your career. True, very true. And again, before we let you go, Jill, we want to wish you a belated happy birthday. Yeah, yeah, we are two or three days late. We should have started with a little birthday song, but that's from all of us here at the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Oh, I've waited a long, long time to do this. I'm still going to get over this, and and as soon as I, I you switch off now, I'm going to be listening to it again right now, right here. I just hope you've you've I've had a good time. Thank you very much. I'll say goodbye. इस हब हॉपर ओरिजिनल को सुनने के लिए आपका शुक्रिया। अगर आप भी अपना पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करना चाहते हैं, तो हब हॉपर स्टूडियो वेबसाइट पे रजिस्टर करें और एक मिनट के अंदर अंदर अपना खुद का पॉडकास्ट लॉन्च करें। यही नहीं, स्टूडियो देता है आपको पूरी आजादी कहीं भी, कभी भी अपना just hop on. Hub Hopper. Simply content.